Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now to Genesis chapter 3. If you are visiting with us, and maybe you've been visiting over the last few weeks, uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Justin. I'm one of the elders here. Um, We've been in a season of the church where we have a fall retreat, and the elders have made it clear to me over the years that they want me to be able to rest uh, and not preach during that time. And so Jeff was here, and Jeff preached, and then Jeff really wanted to preach again. And so God made me sick, and y'all got Jeff again last week. Jeff, thank you for your faithfulness and your willingness to step in at pretty short notice to to preach in my stead and handle the word well. Thank you, brother. Um, We were supposed to, last week, look at uh, a last sermon in the season or the, the series that we're in in the Revelation, and then we were going to take a break and and do our five weeks of Advent. I didn't get to do that, so we'll pick that back up in January. But starting today, we're going to look at a series of promises that God has made throughout Scripture and how those promises are fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to see a familiar passage and maybe a promise you didn't realize was a promise But we're going to start, I'm going to read starting in verse 1. So if you would, follow along in your copy of God's Word as we read Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock 
and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the truths that are revealed to us through your word. We thank you that you have preserved it so that we can know who you are. We can understand what has gone wrong in our world. And we can even see in the midst of this ancient story, we can even see a promise, a promise that you have made that you would come one day that you would bring an end to the serpent's misery and rebellion. I pray that you would be with us this morning as we study your word. I pray that you would open our eyes to see our great need of a a serpent-crushing Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you do this? Would you accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have reached that magical time of the year when hope and excitement and anticipation is around every corner. Like the uh, Christmas song says, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. But if we are not careful, we can completely lose sight of what Christmas is all about. The story of Christmas is the story of God rescuing his people. It's the story of how God plans to bring exiled sinners home. It's the story of the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Christmas time is a celebration of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, humbling himself to become a man in order to specifically live in obedience to the commands of God and to die as a sacrifice for sinners like you and I. We celebrate Christmas by looking back because we know that Christ has already come. We know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem 2,000 some odd years ago. We know that he lived and died and rose again in the first century. But for the Jews during that time leading up to the New Testament, they were still waiting for the promised Messiah to arrive. And we know that they were waiting because as we read the, the first pages of the New Testament, we see this state of anticipation that they were in. We see it in the language that is used. For instance, when John the Baptist began his ministry, the people were asking him with excitement, are you the Christ? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Or should we be looking for another? Wrapped up in their question is this hopeful anticipation that the promises they've known were fulfilled in John. When Philip met Jesus, he said to his brother in excitement, we have finally found him. We have found the one that Moses and all the prophets have written about. For thousands of years, the Jews had been waiting for the promised Savior to arrive. And part of what we want to do in this Advent series is to capture a little bit of that anticipation by looking back at the promises that God has made and how Christ fulfills them. Now, we call this season Advent. It's not a word we use all that often, but it's a word that has meaning. Dan mentioned earlier, it comes from the old Latin Adventus, which means arrival. 
And, and attached to that is this idea of the coming of the one that we've been waiting for. And so we celebrate in this Advent series the arrival, the coming of Christ. Advent is about his coming, and it's an annual celebration for the church to pause and to look back and remember and rejoice that Christ has come, but his work is not fully complete. It is already inaugurated, but not yet fully consummated. There is more to come. So we not only look back at his first coming, but we look longingly to his second coming. That's what this Advent season is is all about. And this year, we're going to spend our Advent season looking at the promises, just a few of the promises that God has made of a Savior to come and how Christ fulfilled those promises. And to to start, we're going to look back at this Garden of Eden story and look at the trouble that's been caused by the serpent. And we're going to see a series of firsts in this. We're going to see here, or we see here, the very first sin. So look back at the text and think about it from this perspective. Every story, every well-told story follows a pattern, right? Every well-told story follows a pattern. First, the characters are introduced. There's a main character and there's the supporting cast of characters. And then the setting comes into view. And in this particular case, we have God and we have Adam and Eve. And the setting is that they are in the garden, in this place of, of peace and rest, this place of beauty where God even declares that everything there is very good. That's where all the action is going to take place now in the garden. And then the plot begins to develop. And the plot helps us to understand what the overarching theme of the story is going to be. It's this relationship between God and his people, and this relationship has been affected by this new antagonist, this new character that has come into the drama. The antagonist in the story of God and his people is the serpent in the garden. And into the peace and into the order of creation, the Bible tells us that this crafty serpent crept. And he introduces the central conflict that has dominated the human story ever since. All of humanity has, has been asking this question for millennia. What has gone wrong in the world? And the, the, the tale that we are looking at helps us to make sense of what has gone wrong. But the question that I want to ask is, who is this serpent? Who or what is this serpent? I don't know about you, but I've, I've not come across a talking serpent in my lifetime. In Genesis chapter 3, we're not told a lot about the serpent. We don't get much of his backstory at all. In fact, we don't know anything about him except that he is more crafty than any other beast of the field. We have to learn about his identity from other passages in Scripture. And I'm going to fast forward to one that should be familiar to us, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, which we just studied a few weeks ago, and we read this. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The serpent that we meet in Genesis 3 is none other than Satan himself. Most of us know this and know this well. He is a being of great power who, pos- who opposes God and opposes God's purposes. 
He appears throughout the Old Testament as the accuser of God's people. He brings charges of their sin before God. Um, You can see that in the book of Job. We studied that just a few weeks ago. In the New Testament, he is seen as the chief enemy of God. He tempts Jesus in the wilderness, and then according to Jesus' own testimony in John chapter 12, Satan exercises a certain level of authority upon earth that had been granted to him by God the Father. Throughout Scripture, he is referred to as the deceiver. He is called by Jesus the father of lies. He is referred to by Peter as a devouring and roaring lion. He is the accuser. He is a murderer from the beginning. He is the tempter who disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul calls him in Ephesians the prince of the power of the air, the one who is at work now in the sons of disobedience. He goes by many names But here's what we know as we read this text. We are not dealing with a simple serpent here. We're dealing with a powerful being who aims to murder and destroy our souls by distorting the word of God and leading us into rebellion. And according to the Genesis 3 account, the Bible tells us that the ancient serpent came specifically to the woman to initiate his attack. He called God's word into question by asking, did God actually say that you can't eat from something in the garden? And then he called God a liar when he told Eve, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat, you're going to be like him. Your eyes will be open. You will know good and evil. When this conversation began, the garden was a place of peace and beauty. There was no rebellion in Eve's heart, and sin had not been conceived, but now everything is going to change. The serpent was the cause of the temptation that led humanity into sin. And because of that, he is going to specifically be punished by the father. He initiated the attack on Eve. He deceived her and he cast doubt upon God's word. And he's still doing the same thing. The temptation for us to go our own way and not trust the word of God. The temptation for us to say that we can solve the greatest problems in our lives, not relying upon Christ and, and as the Savior that was sent. The, the same temptations are alive and well today, causing us not to trust God's word and not to trust God's goodness. Eve took the fruit. She ate what God had forbidden her to eat. And this is the beginning of the story. And the issue at stake is not some arbitrary piece of fruit. The issue at stake here is not the value of one piece of fruit over another. The issue that really gets to the, to the root of sin is who gets to determine what is right and what is wrong. Who gets to determine what is good and what is evil. Are we going to take that for ourselves or are we going to trust our creator and Lord? The essence of sin is our internal longing to choose for ourselves what we will do. And this is embodied in the Old Testament. It's embodied in the the period of the judges when everyone just does what is right in their own eyes rather than trusting to the revealed word of God. The essence of sin is our internal longing to choose for ourselves what we will do rather than trusting God's word and being obedient to him. The Bible tells us that when Eve looked at the fruit, she saw that it was desirable. It looked good. It looked good for for food. And then she she 
reasoned, well, if, if this is going to make me understand good and evil, then I might as well eat it. So she took and she ate the fruit and then she gave it to her husband and he ate it as well. And then the entire world is turned upside down. In that very moment, Adam and Eve felt something. They experienced something internal that they had never experienced before. They experienced shame. They felt shame, and then later on we find out that they were afraid. They felt fear. They covered themselves because they, they all of a sudden understood the shame of their nakedness. And then they hid from God because they were afraid of him. And then they began to blame one another for what had happened. And all of this is intended to show us the internal corruption that immediately resulted from one act of human rebellion against God. This is where the story takes a hard left turn and it becomes a nightmare. Adam and Eve rebelled against the authority of God's voice, and the result is that all of humanity is now in a state of corruption. The very next generation of Adam and Eve's children, we realize it doesn't, we don't slowly work our way into sin. Cain rises up and kills his brother. And then the human story from that point forward just gets worse and worse and worse. And we are experiencing the corruption of sin even today. The Bible teaches that all people everywhere and at all times since the fall of our first parents into sin, all of us have an innate depravity, an innate corruption of heart, which leads us to sin against God as soon as we are able to sin. And this universal condition of mankind is owing to that first sin, that first disobedience of Adam and God's judgment upon that sin. This is the doctrine of original sin. And it's not just referred to in the Old Testament. We see it discussed in the New Testament as well. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of God, says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. The doctrine of original sin does not refer primarily or exclusively to the first sin. It refers to the result of that sin, which is the corruption of the human race, the corruption of the whole of creation. The Bible's answer to the age-old question, what has gone wrong in the world, is that the corruption of human sin has invaded the design of creation. And that's where this story begins. Sin is a cancer that has corrupted every human heart from Adam and Eve right on down to today. All of mankind from Adam onward has this innate corruption of heart that inclines us to sin at the first opportunity. Therefore, all of mankind has the same need. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all of us need to be reconciled to our Creator our sinful actions are owing to the corruption of our nature, which is common to all of us. But let's get into the story and, and ask this question. What is God going to do? What is God going to do about our rebellion? Well, we've looked at the first sin. Now let's look at the first curse. Look back at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock 
and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now just before this, we read this earlier, just before this, God came to Adam and Eve first. He asked them, where are you? He asked them, why are you hiding? He said, who told you that you were naked? So God, he goes to them and he begins to ask them questions. He gives them a chance to explain. He gives no such opportunity to Satan. God holds the serpent responsible. And unlike Adam and Eve, God offers to the serpent no chance of redemption. And that is consistent throughout scripture. The term cursed here, when God says, cursed are you above all livestock, this term carries the idea of punishing. Uh, There's a a punishment that results from the Satan's involvement. It also carries the idea of banishment, which is going to come later when Adam and Eve are forced in exile away from the presence of God. But in this particular case, we learn that the, the, the first curse upon the serpent comes in four specific ways. First, he's cursed to crawl on his belly. Now this posture is intended metaphorically to show humiliation. For his efforts in the fall of man, the serpent is brought as low as possible. And and there's there's a play on words that is taking place here. When we first meet the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, we learn that he is more shrewd or more crafty than any other beast of the field. And now, right here, we're told that he is more cursed than any other beast of the field. So first, he's cursed to crawl on his belly. Second, he's cursed to eat dust all his days. It doesn't get much lower than eating dust instead of bread. And this is yet another sign of the serpent's grave punishment. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, uh, referring to an individual eating dust is a sign of their humiliation and shame. In Micah chapter 7 and verse 16 through 17, we see that very thing, that licking the dust is uh, like a serpent is a metaphor for humiliation and shame and being brought low. The third is that the serpent is cursed to have hostility with man. What does hostility mean? It means that there's a, there's a hostile relationship between the serpent and the man, which is experienced every time a snake crawls into my backyard and my wife sees it. There's this natural aversion that we have. And some scholars would say, well, God's curse here doesn't really go beyond that. This is just a natural aversion that humans have to serpents, to snakes, and what they can do. And Okay, I'll I'll grant you that, but there's so much more to this particular story. The story in the garden makes clear that this is not an ordinary serpent. And nor has he committed an ordinary crime against humanity. The hostility between the serpent and the offspring of the woman, her seed or her children, that's a theme that begins here in Genesis 3 and it can be seen throughout Scripture all the way to the book of Revelation. There's something mysterious and purposeful about this particular part of the curse. And it goes well beyond humanity's natural aversion to the heel-biting nature of snakes. The fourth way in which the serpent is cursed is that he is cursed to receive 
a mortal wound. In Genesis 3.15, it reveals that man versus serpent is not just a physical struggle, it's a spiritual struggle, it's a cosmic struggle. And it is God who is placing this enmity between the human race and our primal enemy. The seed of the woman will be bruised by the destructive efforts of the seed of the serpent, but the woman's descendants will fight back. Every time a snake bites, we will be reminded of the war between God and the one who first tempted us to sin. But we are also reminded, if we know this verse, that this war will not last forever. The decisive battle is coming. This curse holds out a promise that the treachery of the serpent, that the work of Satan will be brought to an end when the promised seed of the woman, the heaven-sent Messiah, comes to crush the deceiver once and for all. Now, for many of you, you know this story. This is not new. This is something you've learned. This is something you've heard as you've seen instances of gospel promise throughout Scripture. But this is the very first instance of God giving us good news that the the corruption that was born in the garden was going to be dealt with. And so we've seen the first sin, we've looked at the first cursed, and now we see a hint of the first gospel, the proto-evangelium. In verse 15, we read this, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman refers to the offspring of the woman, who will one day crush the serpent's head. Have you ever wondered why the Jews paid so much attention to genealogy? Why they cared about who begat this person and all of that? Part of it has to do with their inheritance, and part of it has to do with promises just like this. The Jews were waiting for the seed of the woman to come, and this will serve as Satan's ultimate punishment. But notice that both sides will sustain an injury a strike to the heel, and a blow to the head. And yet the seed of the woman will come out victorious over the serpent. So here's the question. Who is the seed of the woman? Who is the seed of the woman that humanity should be looking for who will deal this deadly blow to crush the head of the serpent in the garden? Well, one thing about the seed is made clear in verse 15 And it's that the seed is a he. He shall bruise your head. A masculine singular pronoun is used to describe the one who is to come. A single male will come to defeat the enemy of mankind. Not an army, not a nation, but a man. Right here, in the very first pages of Scripture, we have the first promise from God that a Savior is to come. A Messiah will be sent to right all the wrongs caused by sin and to restore what was lost in the garden. Now, we've got five more weeks of studying this, so I don't want to give all of the story away, but the answer to the mystery in the garden, the hidden piece to the puzzle of redemption is the Lord Jesus Christ, who we are told in Galatians chapter 4 by the Apostle Paul that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus Christ came into the world as the heaven-sent fulfillment of this ancient promise that God made in the Garden of Eden. He was born as the seed of the woman, born to redeem sinners like you and me. 
so that we could be adopted into the family of God. Now, just a few weeks ago, we studied what I believe is the culmination of this promise and this picture. We studied it in the Revelation in chapter 12. And y'all might remember that. In, in Revelation chapter 12, we see a vision come into the picture. And in this vision, we see that there is a woman, and this woman is pregnant, and she's about to give birth. And there is a dragon in the story, a great dragon. And he is waiting to devour the child. Do you remember that story? Well, this is the Genesis 3 story coming to fruition in its fullness, in its promise, in its fulfillment. The woman's about to give birth. The dragon is waiting to devour the child, thinking that this might be the final seed, the one who has come to deal the crushing blow. But in the moment that the child is born, Satan is powerless to prevent his coming. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 5, we read that the woman gave birth to the male child, the one that is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was called up to God and to his throne. And that's a reference to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And the result of this child being born and accomplishing his purpose, this long-awaited Messiah from God, was that a war arose in heaven and then the great dragon was thrown down. This is Revelation 12, 9. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and the angels were thrown down with him. And this lets us know that the enemy is not completely vanquished. That's still to come. But that crushing blow has already begun. The end of our enemy is coming. And we have known that it was coming ever since Genesis 3. Genesis 3 verse 15 is known as the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. It is the first promise from God that our enemy will get what is coming to him and the people of God will no longer be plagued by his poisonous tongue. And over the next few weeks, we're going to continue to study different messianic promises that God has given to us in the Old Testament and how they are fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. As we anticipate the celebration of Christmas, we're going to be learning these things together in hopes to build some anticipation for the promise being fulfilled in the coming of Christ, the God-man born to, to live and die for us. So what can we take away from this? What can we take away? Some points of application, some practical truths from this particular story. First, God is more patient than we are. God is more patient than we are. When this time of year rolls around, we can hardly wait for Christmas Day. Most of us just want all these days to fly by, right? We just let's, let's get that last week of work in. Let's get off. Let's get our, our time together. Let's get together with family. We just want everything to fly by. We want these days to fly by so that we can have the gifts and we can have the celebration. And yet this promise that God made at the beginning of all things is still on hold. Why? Well, the scriptures tell us that the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise. Not in the way that we count slowness. Actually, he's being patient towards us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's not going to hurry things up. He's going to stick to his plan. He's going to accomplish his purpose. And today is the day of salvation. 
Today is the day. The reason the Lord tarries is because he's still filling in his family. So the Lord is patient, far more patient than us. And we need to praise him for his patience because in it he is accomplishing his saving purpose for sinners like you and me. Secondly, we can understand this from the story. That God holds all men responsible for their sin. In Genesis 3, God held Adam and Eve responsible for their sin when he pronounced a curse upon them. We didn't read that, but it's there in the text. Man is cursed to toil in the dirt, and the woman is cursed to experience the pain that children bring to their parents. God holds them responsible, and God holds Satan responsible as well. And this is something that we should all understand and embrace. God is a just judge, and unless you as an individual person, unless you find forgiveness in Christ, you too will be called to account for your sin. And third, God is more patient than we are. God holds all men responsible for their sin. And God's gift is just what we need. God's gift is just what we need. Perhaps you've already tried to get a jump on your holiday shopping. You don't have to raise your hand. But everybody wants to take advantage of those Black Friday deals. And you're hoping that you have found the perfect gift for the person that you love. That they're going to be so thankful that it's going to be exactly what they wanted. That it's, it's going to be perfect. And we know that's never the case. But God's gift to humanity is truly a one-size-fits-all. Jesus is the perfect Savior for needy sinners like us. So receive him today. Lay down your sin and turn away from it in repentance. Pray to God and ask for him to forgive your sin because of what Christ has done. This promise, this proto-gospel comes from God and it is the root of our hope as sinful man. Our hope is that all the wrongs will be made right. Our hope is that all the broken things will be mended. Our hope is that justice will truly come and healing will come along with it. The source of all the hopelessness within humanity can be traced all the way back to this rebellion in the garden. But the foundation for our true hope is that God has made a plan to make all things right again. The one, the only one who can overcome our sin and rebellion in the garden is God himself. You and I can't solve our sin problem. Only God can. And in Christ, he has. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for giving me the strength to to preach and to explain this. I pray that in this promise, simple though it may seem, I pray that in this promise we will see your goodness. We will see your plan and your purpose. I pray that we would not rely upon ourselves in some self-salvation mission, nor would we dismiss the truth of your word as some myth that we don't need to care about. But in it, we would see the gracious and kind hand of our God, who in the midst of our rebellion, in the very echo of our sin, already had a purpose and a plan to, to make a way for us to come back into a relationship with him. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this and I pray that you would accomplish your purpose in drawing us to you and giving us the only hope that matters, the hope that we have through Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.